he's just a sweet being who needs to be protected and then yeah. you put him through hell why would you do that to me specifically <laughs> well you know he's got to be Mr. Rochester he's got to have those horrible things happen that's so true if that is yes. that's a sweet being who goes through a lot is is one way to describe <laughs> Mr. Rochester not yeah. the only way but certainly one of them Lillian, hi. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm doing good too. And mostly because we have the honor of having a very special guest on the podcast today. Tracy Nice is here, author of Mr. R, which is her take on this wonderful story that we've dedicated our podcast to and many, 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 many hours of our life and attention mm-hmm. and sleepless nights. So uh, Tracy, um, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us about you know who you are. Uh, tell us a little about your book. Um, and let's just start with that. Okay. Hi, I'm Tracy Nice. Um, I'm originally from Ohio. I live in California now. First time I heard the Jane Eyre story is when I was a senior in high school. My friends and I were riding on a bus to Canada. Uh, it was a dead of night. We were telling ghost stories. And my friend Mary, who was an inveterate reader, um, told us the story of Jane Eyre. But we kept interrupting her because all we wanted to hear about was the mad wife. None of this love story crap. <laughs> and um, And then fast forward a few years, it was the first time I read the book when I was 19, um, and I fell in love with it, and I reread it every year for um, many years. And then when fast forward many years till I was in my 40s, and I'd always wanted to write a book. I've always put it off. I had one reason or another as a stay-at-home mom, you know, kind of busy. Um, And then my friend Mary died from cancer, and it kind of just hit me like, Mm -hmm. you can't keep putting things off. You got to do things. So I wrote my first version of the story then. And then since then, I've rewrote it many, many times. But um, my first version of the story was then. That's wonderful. And yeah, what a great, you know, motivation and inspiration. And like, I bet she would love that. So that's beautiful. So did this originally begin as like a fan fiction? Or did you start it as an original novel? Um, Well, I tell you, I've never really read much fan fiction. I think that that's I mean, mm-hmm. not, not that people my age don't read it, but I mean, I used to read Star Trek novels when I was in my 20s. Um, my nice. daughters all read a lot of fan fiction. It never really occurred to me at that point in my life to write one. I just thought, well, I'll write a novel because I've loved so many other novels that are rewrites of other people's um, classic books. Mm-hmm. Like I loved um, the story of Edgar Sawtale, which is Hamlet. And um, I've read one about um, mm-hmm. Anna Karenina. I forget what that was called. I think Anna Kay. Um So I I meant it as a novel, but the first draft I did was very much just a rewrite of Jane Eyre. It was told from the Jane Eyre point of view, Mm -hmm. told in first person. Um, Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time just thinking, okay, if I'm going to retell it in this setting, what do I have to change? What can I make different? What makes the same? And, um, And I really wasn't thinking about doing anything unique to it in my first draft. I really was just retelling it. And then it's the many, many revisions of it that I've done where I've kind of made it into the story of Mr. Rochester rather than the story of Jane Eyre. And to a large extent, I really made Jane Eyre a smaller and smaller character in the book every time I did a rewrite. I think that's something that immediately I feel like I can relate to as a consumer of this story. I mean, I love Jane and I feel like only now in reading the novel am I really getting more attached to her. But the reason I started loving this is because of the character of Rochester. So I think for many of the Jane Eyre fans, that's a very relatable position to be in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I also think, you know, it's hard to improve on Jane Eyre. You know, I mean, you can right. make her different and give her quirks. If I, if I made her in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, what would she be like? But I wanted to make her unique. And, you know, I'm, I'm never going to beat Charlotte Bronte. So I want to do a different spin on it. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a great totally. point. Well, for, for our listeners, um, we are going to do talk about this the same way we've talked about books in the past, where we're going to start by talking about the book in a way that you would talk to somebody who hasn't read it yet in a way that you're like trying, we're not spoiling it because you do have a couple of moments and beats and stuff that, that feel a little bit different. I think the biggest twists and turns are, are Jane Eyre twists and turns. So if you know the story of Jane Eyre, those ones are not spoilers for you, but some of the thoughts we have and want to get your takes on are for later in the book and later in the story and how you made those choices. But I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of like the premise and where we start with um, Mr. R and all of that stuff. So we'll start there and we'll let anybody know when we switch over and start talking a bit about those spoiler moments. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just from the very beginning, were you, did, was that the first thing that you sort of thought of is like the time and place or how did you decide to make the premise of your version and your interpretation um, this uh, 60s, 70s rock idol, I don't know what we would call him, uh, rock <laughs> star, um, and and kind of why why make Mr. Rochester a rock star? What was the, the goal there? Was that the first thing you thought of or was that something you thought of later? Actually, that was the first thing I thought of. Um, I think part of the reason for that is I'm a huge Beatles fan. Um, always have been. And so it was fun for me to think, you know, with, with the British invasion, you know, the things I loved at English, I was an English major in college. I love British literature, but I've also loved British invasion music, the Beatles, the Who, the Stones. Um, that's my favorite thing. Um, and then when I thought, like, how could, if, when I was just thinking about how to update the story, I thought, how could I make Mr. Rochester believable nowadays? Who could get away with the crap that he gets away with? And um, in my first version of the book, Mr. Rochester is very much like he is in the Jane Eyre book. He tells a lot of lies. Um, mm-hmm. He lives a very secret double life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the, in the version that's, that I published, um, he's, I think, a gentler character. But initially, I kind of made him a rock star just so that he can get away with being so awful. Because when you think about, you know, rock stars, the things that they do, you know, they, they just, they can do anything and, and they just have people falling at their feet, listening to them. And that makes them feel like they can do even worse things. And, um, and also the fact that they can push <laughs> women around um, and that for a rock star to get involved with a woman so much younger than him, even today, even after Me Too mm-hmm. is still incredibly common. So that seemed like a good yeah. jump or a good way to interpret the story. Yeah. So I, once, once I started doing that, then the rest of the story kind of fit into his place. Well, then I also had to figure out what to do with Jane. Um, and I you know, grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. I went to a Catholic school. Um, my friend Mary and I you know, went to Catholic school together from second grade on. And so I made Jane a Catholic school girl. But I mean, you know, even though it would have been nice to just send her to Ursula, Ursuline Academy in Cincinnati, that wasn't weird enough. I had to make her go to a weirdo <laughs> boarding school to make it more like Lowood. So I invented a um, Catholic boarding school there. Um, and so that kind of created Jane. In my first drafts of this, um, I had her kind of obsessed with the saints, because if you read the history of the Catholic uh-huh. saints, some of them are just bizarre. They do these magic things. And it just showed <laughs> that she was kind of out of touch with reality 
she lived in kind of a strange fantasy world, but, um, but she, you know, also was kind of a prisoner in her boarding school, just as Mr. Rochester, all these years that he's taking care of his wife, he's kind of a prisoner to that life. And that's what brings them together is that they were both kind of had the last 10, whatever years of their life taken away from them out of, you know, not having a happy life of their own to claim. They had to, in his case, he was taking care of his very sick wife. In her case, she was kind of stuck in this boarding school because her family wouldn't take her back or she wasn't safe going back to her family. Absolutely. That's so cool to see that insight there too. Because, yeah, I was going to say one of my my questions that I had lined up for this is, um, so Lillian and I talk a lot on the show about, like, this is already in the time period where the original, like, source material exists. This is a tricky story. Like, and I think that's one of the things that makes it so compelling. And so I don't know if you are familiar with many other adaptations of Jane Eyre, but we previously have had on the show an interview um, with a woman who did a modern day telling of it via YouTube web series. And that's one thing that we chatted with her is like, how do you take that story and put it in a modern setting? And so like to have those, you know, you've already kind of answered some of these questions, but what did you find was one of the trickiest, maybe like roadblocks or challenges when facing a modern adaptation for this tale? And then how did you go about addressing that? Well, one thing I did was set it in the eighties rather than today, because that was before there was cell phones Mm -hmm. and before there was internet. And so um, when when Jane wants to find anything out about him, she has to go to the library and try to find, you know, an old book or magazine. And of course he lives in this small town in the middle of nowhere. So the library is very small and she had had this very Mm -hmm. sheltered life. So she didn't know anything about him. So um, that helped because I think nowadays, if you said it in the 2010s or 2020s, you know, all you have to do to find out anything about anybody is just type your name on Google and you can find it out. So that was one very conscious decision I made to set it then rather than now. But also for me and my age, that was, um, you know, I kind of came of age in the 70s and 80s. So that was a good age for me to go to. You know, I think I really made an effort to make Jane, the Jane character, she's Jenny in this book, but that she was very, very sheltered, that she didn't have access to, you know, even TV and magazines and stuff when she was growing up. She was kind of stuck in this Catholic school even Mm -hmm. after it closed because uh, her family was so awful, she couldn't mm-hmm. go back to them. And yet she didn't want to be a nun, but she was stuck there. And she was just kind of living there, helping out, but, um, you know, desperately wanting to get away. And so for her, her first step going into Thornfield is just, it's like the world to her. It just opens up everything to her. And even though it's a strange world, it seems so joyful to her that she's gotten out of the convent. Um, and that kind of makes her kind of fall for Eddie quicker than she probably should. So obviously you've talked about the fact that your original drafts were very centered around Jane and ultimately this became Mr. R's story. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you explain a little bit about kind of how and why you ended up telling it from his perspective? Because you you already said kind of up top, it very much became a story about Rochester and we start with him prior to any of the things that we know of in the book, we start with him still kind of in the midst of his rock starness meeting this other woman. And why did you choose to start there? And why did you choose to um, ultimately center your story around Rochester versus Jane? Well, the main reason I did that um, after I wrote my first draft of the book, 
I thought, you know, I really didn't think I would get it published or I hoped I would, but I didn't know. Um, but I just started writing sequels um, and they were just, you know, just for fun. And I, my second book was all retail Wuthering Heights. And so I told that from the point of view of the pianist who's in the band. And then um, I read A Tenet of Wildfield Hall for the first time. Um, and then I retold that from the point of view of the drummer of the band. And then there was a, um, mm. a fragment of a novel that Charlotte Bronte wrote um, about a missing child who wants to find her father. And so I told that from the point of view, basically, of the, um, the lead singer of the band. So now I had three books in my series that were told from the point of view of the man rather than mm. from the girl. So that was one main reason why I fixed it or changed it. But um, another one is I've always been a bit disappointed in um, when you get the whole Jane Eyre story and then after the wedding and Rochester tells her, here's my backstory, and suddenly it, the, the book just changes. Instead of being an action, you know, t- you know, show, not tell, it's definitely a tell. She just sits there and listens to him mm-hmm. go on and tell his story for like a whole chapter of this is how I met my first wife and this is what happened. And my first draft of the book was like that. And um, it's just really, it's not that compelling, you know, and it's very much seems like his, he's just making excuses for himself. He's, he's just presenting her the story from only his point of view. So that's all she gets. And I, you know, I didn't like my version of that in the first draft and it made more sense to just show it, you know, and the only way to do that is to start mm-hmm. the story, you know, 15 years ahead of time when he first meets the first, the first wife and to tell it from that point of view. But also, like I said, I was trying to make him a more sympathetic character and, um, and to show, mm-hmm. well, well, I don't know, I guess I just wanted to make the, the, the first wife character, a bigger wife, a bigger character too. So that was another main reason why I had yeah. to kind of restructure everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I am so curious to talk to you about um, your take on Bertha, a.k.a. Roberta. Um, Lillian, what do you think? Can it, Would this be best saved for spoiler section? Should, or I, should we talk I about this now? I feel like, so I personally feel for a Jane Eyre fan, this story is very hard to spoil. <laughs> but I do want <laughs> for people who who are very sensitive to those sorts of things. I did want to give people an opportunity to just hear us talk about it a bit before we go into spoilers. But I I also am like dying to talk about your your take on Bertha. So we'll go ahead and start talking about spoilers here. So if at this point you are listening to this going, hold on before you start giving away all the cool <laughs> special secrets that Tracy has done to reinterpret this story, I'm going to go read it. Um, I know for sure this story is accessible on Kindle Unlimited. It is also something you can purchase on Amazon. Are there any other places that you want to um, guide people to if they want to stop the podcast now and go buy the book, Tracy? <laughs> Actually, right now you can only get it on Amazon. Um, okay. I initially did sell it to a small publisher, Mischievous Muse in California. And okay. um, so that they printed a first version of it, which has a blue cover. And you might be able to find that through a bookstore and order it through a bookstore. I've um, I've played with it a little bit since then because they folded as soon as it came out. I got the rights back, and um, oh, so the the, what, the what the book with the orange cover is the one that I'm happiest with. And one change that I have made okay. to it a little bit is that it's been printed since Me Too, and I just tried oh, to make some God. of the bits a little more sensitive to that, just because there is a huge age gap between them and the job yeah. gap between them. So. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, you can only get that on Amazon. So, 
Okay. okay. Sounds cool. great. Well, so given that, let's let's we're gonna spoil it now. So you've obviously mm-hmm. paused, read the like went and got your copy, you read it. Welcome back to the podcast. We're <laughs> Welcome so glad back. <laughs> that you're back right now. But Piper, go ahead and ask you a question around Bertha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, now that our listeners have read the book, or maybe not, but they are familiar and they want <laughs> us to just keep going. So I think it's so fascinating, yes, that this begins like the story is essentially told chronologically. Mm-hmm. So we get to see young Rochester, how he meets Roberta, um, how they fall in love, how they get married, how things kind of crumble, and then how he ends up deciding that he's going to essentially cheat on his wife with this young girl that he loves. Um, So I'm so curious because I feel like one thing that I loved about the first half of this book is that you gave so much time to Bertha and her story. She became incredibly real and relatable for me anyway, reading this. So I'm so curious to know, I guess, first of all, when you read Jane Eyre or saw adaptations of Jane Eyre, what did you think of Bertha and what, what, how did that take kind of help you decide to give her this, moment in the sun that she receives in Mr. R? Um, well, I mean, like I say, my very first take on her was when my friend told us the story on the bus as a ghost, as a ghost story. And we were all like, we want more of the mad wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's always presented pretty much as just absolute crazy. And it, it's fun when you watch movie versions of it, just to see the various levels of crazy they give her. Um, but she's very seldom ever shown in a sympathetic light in any of the movies I've seen. I have read a few books since then that present her in a more sympathetic light. Um, certainly Wide Sargasso Sea does, although I never really liked that book myself very much. Um, but I thought it was important. I, I think the big thing for me, um, the reason why I wanted to show her the way I did was I had to make the decision, like you were saying earlier, if you're going to adapt the story to modern times, a big stumbling block is why doesn't Eddie just divorce her? I mean, in this day and age, if you find mm-hmm. out that the spouse you married after a short courtship is insane, you get a divorce, you get an annulment. I mean, it's, it's no big deal. And he decides not to. And so I try to think of reasons why he couldn't. And the only reason that was there was that he was in love with her. And he really truly believed he was going to spend the rest of his life taking care of her, even though she um, becomes very quickly, very ill. The way that when he first meets her, she has her, her moments, um, but she's kind of treating them with medication and then something bad happens and uh, then she becomes just, you know, no longer the woman that she was, but he dedicates himself to taking care of her. And, and to me, that's the big crux of my book is that it's, it's a love story. You know, he's in love with two women and is that possible to love two people? Um, and how does love change over the years? And what it's like when you have a kind of a one-sided love? So that was a big reason why I created her the way I did, was to try to make her somebody who was worthy of his love. Oh, my God. You really broke my heart in the book, and you did it again just now. <laughs> it was, I literally, while I was reading it, I had a couple of points where I was like, is this just going to be like Bertha and Rochester's love story and they're just going to be happy. And I'm like, cause I would actually really enjoy that. And then I started going to for like at different points of the book. I was like, I listen, I'm starting to get worried. And I don't know that it's going to work out for these guys. And yeah. I'm like, I'm going to be really sad. And it really like the time, by the time we get to the time jump, um, cause you do jump forward is about 10 years or so. Um, it really, really breaks my heart for everybody involved in it. And you, you believe like, 
if you didn't have that time jump where he's we're we're jumping forward, it would break my heart that he even considered being with anyone other than Birdie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so giving him that amount of time. Yeah, no, one reason I did that is just to show. I mean, if you take care of a sick person for a day or a week or a month, you know it's exhausting. But I mean, if you take care of a sick person for you know one year, two years, three years, ten years, I think it's like fifteen years actually. When before he finally meets Jenny, I think he he says mm-hmm. it's like nine years before he finally cheats on her, and even then he hates himself for doing it. But he's just so unhappy and so miserable, and yet he feels mm-hmm. guilty about it. And that almost gives him the strength to go back and take care of her some more because, um, you know, he feels so guilty that that kind of gives him the extra impetus to okay, yeah, I've got to take care of her now. I've I've hurt her, and um, so. I think it's important, though. I mean, I didn't want to just show, you know, have all those chapters of him just sitting in the farmhouse taking care of his very sick wife. Because, I mean, that's not very compelling mm-hmm. storytelling. That's just really, really sad. And I think, <laughs> I think in a way that if I did show that, it might make you almost wish leave her earlier. You know, I think that um, the character mm-hmm. of his lead singer from his band, the Tony character, um, the few times he talks to Eddie, he's kind of like, leave her now, divorce her now you know, get on with your life. Mm-hmm. And um, some of his friends do that. Other of his friends don't. Other of his friends are like, you know, you got to keep doing this. This is who you are. So, yeah, I think that makes me think of, um, we oftentimes on the podcast, we talk about how Rochester's love language is that he like is a provider. He wants to care for other people. Um, and so I like that. Yeah. We saw not only how he, you know, sticks with uh, birdie to like help her but whenever his drummer was like going to rehab like again and again it was always eddie who was there to like watch after his daughter and kind of support him mm-hmm. so i thought that was a great way to kind of take the way that rochester cares for others and bring that into your story so i thought that was great Thank loved you. that yeah i think also that's kind yeah. of how he starts his initial feeling about jane or the jenny characters like that is that he sees that she's a very um innocent, uh, neglected, practically neglected to the point of being abused young woman. And he wants to help her. He wants to say, you know, you need to get out of that convent. You need to go to college. You need to get on with your life. You need to meet people your own age. You need to do something besides just live in a convent or live in my farmhouse or whatever. Um, But then the more time he spends with her, the more he realizes that they have an awful lot in common and he really, really loves her. And yet he fights it, you know, I mean, he, he doesn't just, mm-hmm. you know, act like a rock star would like, you know, I don't know how many rock stars have had affairs with the nannies that they hire to take care of their children, but he doesn't <laughs> do it right away. He's, he fights it, but, um, but he wants to. Well, and you had a line that was particularly funny to me. Um, and I highlighted it at one point in the book, and I'm curious as if you added it in your later rounds of editing, that when Rochester finds out that Jerry, when Jerry, um, when Jerry is sleeping with the nannies, um, before he goes to rehab, uh, Eddie is like, so gross of you to sleep with the nanny. Yeah. Guess what's coming? Yeah. <laughs> and I liked that he was the kind of guy who was like, who would sleep with a nanny? That's so gross. And then he meets her and he's like, God, I keep staring at her. How inappropriate am I? I think, t- too, when you were talking about that, Tracy, of this kind of um, going back to kind of what you said about this, the trickiness of like loving two people and not wanting to like give up on somebody. I think there's 
you captured like that in a, in a different way in your story. Um, but there's similar kind of like that idea of being, you know, sort of trapped, um, that we get in that I think is like one of the most powerful things about like Jane Eyre is this idea of like, I know what's right. I know what I feel, but then there's like all these other things that are acting on my decisions, you know, society, other people. And then here now too, the fact that he actively loves his wife as well as this new person in his life that adds a whole nother layer to that. So it, that's a cool thing to have explored. It's a complicated story. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess as a contemporary reader reading Jane Eyre for the first time, you kind of you kind of wonder why can't he just divorce her? What? How bad was it back in? I, I don't know exactly what decade it's set because it was written in the 1840s, but I think it's set actually in the 1820s. Um, maybe you know that better than me. But mm-hmm. even then, I mean, you would think that he could have gotten a divorce back then. You would think, but but he doesn't. And and I think maybe that's just Charlotte Bronte's premise. You know that she's just going to accept the fact that this he, he can't get a divorce. And so he's stuck in this marriage. I think it's come up in a few versions um, and like maybe other podcasts that I've listened to on this topic, but there's something about the fact that because like the doctors knew of her mental state, that was the opposite. It meant that he could not divorce her. He could not abandon her. There was something about that legally, I think. And I'd have to do some research on it, but I think it had something to do with that, which feels counterintuitive nowadays. You'd be like, oh, well, this is a reason to like get divorced. Yeah. But but I think also the fact that uh, I mean, people, people talk about how they lock her in the closet or in the attic and what a horrible man he is to her. But, you know, when you consider what the asylums were like in that day and age, I mean, at least she is mm-hmm. well fed mm-hmm. and well clothed and, and not you know, having cold water splashed on her and not living in a house with a lot of other insane people. So I, I think he tries to present himself as being merciful in his explanation to Jane why he did this to his wife. Um, it's still really hard for a modern reader to believe that, though, because it just doesn't seem like a very kind way to treat his first wife. I think just in general, Bertha is such an interesting character and in that yeah. idea of, like, what do you owe someone? Because I think even even the situation, like, we're talking about the idea of like, why wouldn't he divorce her? And I think even uh, there's so many reasons, even with loving her, why wouldn't he leave her? Why does he still feel like he's married to her? Why, like why all these things? Um, And I think one of the, that, that brings me to one of the other big questions that I have for you around the book, which is the way that you um, interpreted and, or kind of reimagined um, Richard Dick Mason and John Reed and their sort of roles in this book and bringing them really in that in the first chunk we definitely see Dick as a villain but mm-hmm. kind of how John Reed ends up getting connected with him and we see these like actual people manifesting as forces to keep um, Jenny and Eddie from being happy um, so I'm very curious as to what that choice was like for both of those characters. Well, I guess I knew I needed a bad guy and those were the bad guys in the book. So I figured why not put them <laughs> together. Um, and I think because it's a book about rock stars and obviously rock stars deal with drugs all the time. Um, even if they're not taking them, the people around them are taking them, but let's face it, most of them probably are taking them or at least are exposed to them. It seemed like that would be the natural villain um, in a rock star's life is, is it's the drugs. And so to have drug dealers um, in cahoots with each other seemed like a good way to, to tie them into the story. And that also is, you yeah. know, something that, you know, as John Reed, I mean, Dick, Dick didn't necessarily sell to just rock stars. He sold to, you know, anybody he would tell to. But 
John Reed, Jenny's cousin, was selling to college students, which is a more typical, you know, low-key drug dealer, but that they would kind of somehow meet, meet in Ohio. It's a little bit odd to think that they would do that, but <laughs> why not have them do it? And, uh, <laughs> and so that would kind of unite. Why did you pick um, Ohio out of curiosity? Well, because I'm from Ohio. So uh, okay. at the time that, that I wrote sense. it. I yeah. sort of thought that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at the but time that I wrote California, it. I was like. Yeah. At the time that I wrote it, I was um, going through a period in my life where I was very, very homesick. Um, and also I knew Ohio very well. So I felt more comfortable writing about it. Um, mm -hmm. But in my first draft, the one that's told from the point of view of Jenny, when she runs away, she goes to California. And I, she just mentions that in the very end of this book, what happened when you ran away, mm -hmm. because this one is told from Eddie's point of view. So we don't get to see all the stuff that Jenny does. But in the first draft of the book, mm -hmm. when Jenny runs away, she goes to California. So she has a whole quarter of the book there. So that was kind of fun to have the two places that I had lived in be the two major places for the book. That was actually one of my questions too, because I, I had read your author bio. So I, and I saw that you mentioned, you know, your, the places you've lived. So I wanted to ask you like, um, in your writing journey in general, I mean, what does it mean for you to draw from life experiences versus like, Googling or researching or just purely making things up? Like, how do you walk that line personally when you write? Well, for this book, because it's a retelling of Jane Eyre, I didn't have to really worry about the basic plot points and making up a story. Um, so mm -hmm. it, was, it was just adapting a story that I loved so much. And it was kind of natural to stick it into places that I'd been to before. So a lot of it happens in Ohio, where I'm from. There was the bit in California that I cut out, but that, that I would know that place. And then the opening part happens in Europe, mostly in Munich. Um, and I spent my sophomore year of college in Austria. So, um, mm -hmm. and that's actually the year I read Jane Eyre, I was living in Austria. So I kind of always associate it with that. Um, so that's why I have a lot of the German stuff. Um, I, I, I didn't live in Munich. I lived in uh, Innsbruck, but, um, but I, Munich was one of my favorite cities. So it, and it was kind of a little more cosmopolitan. So to set the story there, that's where the, the band was kind of based out of, um, rather than have them based out of Innsbruck, because nothing would happen if you were based out of Innsbruck. You'd just go skiing all the time. Um, by the way, so one of the things that I was wondering, um, so obviously you, you mentioned at the beginning that you're a big fan of the Beatles mm -hmm. and all of that. Given the time period when Eddie was Eddie and the pilots were supposed to be popular, did you have um, like a particular rock star in mind that you were picturing when you picture your Eddie or like an actor, or was he just completely like, like an individual uh, from your imagination? Um, well, I'd say, you know, my first draft, the one that I don't really get into the band as much. Um, my favorite rock star is John Lennon. So he had things in common with John Lennon. I wouldn't say I based him on him, but I mean, the fact that they're both um, the lyricists, um, that he's very romantic. Um, but I mean, but, you know, John obviously had a horrible temper and, uh, not always the nicest person and Eddie's kind of the opposite of that. He's kind of a very much a kind person. Um, but the other members of the band, I mean, you know, they the, have the, the pianist. There is no pianist in the Beatles, although several of them play, Beatles, play the piano and Jerry is an alcoholic. And I know Ringo did go through rehab for that, but he's not really like that. You know um, I think I just tried to make up a fun band um, and cool. basing them on somewhat, you know, because like I say, I just put them into the other Bronte sister stories and the other novels. 
And so by the time I got to writing the draft mm -hmm. of, of this book that, um, that I published, I've actually established the other members of the band a lot better. Mm. So, um, yeah, they're not Thanks. really based on the Beatles, but there's, I think that that comes through. I think the fact that the sense of humor that the, the four members of that band had when they get together is something that I really mm -hmm. wanted to try to find. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I definitely, when I was reading those early sections, I remember, um, I actually said to Lillian at one point when we were chatting, I was like, this lady seems to know her stuff. Cause <laughs> not that I'm an expert on this, but I'm like, this all feels very legit <laughs> Like of just like the lingo they used and like the way that you talked about different elements of that kind of career and that lifestyle. It felt like you knew what you were talking about. So yeah, <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I used a lot of um, internet sources. It's funny, the first draft of this I wrote was in, um, I think, 2007, 2008. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I did have a computer then with the internet, but I think, you know, just by the time I got around to publishing this, you know, 10 years later, the this internet's so much faster and so many more sites and so it's easier mm -hmm. to get. So when it came to like writing English slang for this word and I can type it and then you can even like fight, you know, <laughs> find like North English slang as opposed to South English slang for this word. And, you know, slang word that would have been popular in the 1960s rather than a slang word that would have been popular in the 1980s. It's all there online. So that's really a useful tool, Perfect. which I don't think writers appreciate enough. <laughs> I am currently in the process of editing my first book oh, and good. I've been doing the exact same. So oh, good. <laughs> I know it's not the right, uh, like time period necessarily, but I'm a huge Steven Tyler fan. Mm -hmm. So that's who I was kind of picturing oh, as my Eddie. <laughs> yeah. I could picture Jerry in my head. <laughs> exactly what I think he looks like. I really don't picture Eddie so much in my head. Um, except that he has dark brown eyes, which are like mm -hmm. my husband's. So um, the rest of him isn't at all like my mm, husband, but he does have my husband's dark brown eyes. Lillian, who were you imagining um, when you read Mr. R? Honestly, mostly, okay, so mostly because of the fact that it starts with him at a party that he's leaving to go read poetry. I was picturing a very 90s Hugh Grant. Cute! <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Which was the thing that I was going to ask you about is for, because the way that Bertha or Roberta, who is often referred to as Bertie, which is very cute. And Eddie first bond over their shared love of poetry. And then later he bonds over similar things with Jenny. Mm -hmm. um, I know you mentioned something about English lit and being really into that, but that was the thing that I picked up on the most that I was like, somebody knows their Victorian <laughs> poets really well. So yeah. I was wondering yeah. about where the inspiration came for that. Yeah, well, I was an English major in college. And um, I think one of my favorite periods of English literature is always the um, romantic Victorian poets. So um, uh, yeah, that was easy to write about for me. I knew kind of where to look. I mean, it's not like I had the poetry memorized, but I knew which poets did which things. Um, and then I know that feeling. I mean, most of the English majors at my school were girls, but there was a handful of boys and they were kind of nerdy boys, you know, the, the kind of boy who likes to read poetry um, is a certain type. And then uh, the fact that he's the lyricist for a band, you know, I mean, because I love reading yeah. really good rock poetry or other country poetry. I mean, any rap poetry, I mean, any song lyrics, I just love reading them. And there's a very close line between rock lyrics and poetry lyrics. And uh, so if I was going to make that his characteristic, you know, that he's a poet, why not play with that? And um, 
And but that's the fact that it makes him kind of stand out too. That he's not just the rock star who likes to party. He's the rock star who likes to express himself through his words. He's just a sweet being who needs to be protected. And then yeah. you put him through hell. Why would you do that to me specifically? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's got to be Mr. Rochester. He's got to have those horrible things happen. That's so true. If that is yes. that's a sweet being who goes through a lot is is one way to describe <laughs> Mr. Rochester. Not yeah. the only way, but certainly one of them. Well, mm-hmm. the first time oh. I read the book, um, I was just drawn in. I fell in love with the love story. And uh, I it never even mm-hmm. really occurred to me what a jerk he was the first time I read the book. I was just, oh, he's so <laughs> misunderstood, you know. Jenny loves or Jane loves him. And, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that she, you know, that she forgives him. She even says that in the book that Charlotte Bronte is Jane Eyre. Um, after he gives mm-hmm. his big explanation about why I didn't tell you this. And when she's making her decision, I have to run away. But before she runs away, she even says, like, reader, I forgave him. And I think it's important mm-hmm. to know that a lot of people write horrible things about Mr. Rochester. I think White Sargasso Sea, perfect example, but other books, movies, they present him in a really terrible light, as well they should, because he does terrible things. But I think it's mm-hmm. important to remember that, that Charlotte Bronte wanted Jane to be with him, and she liked him, I think, as a character. Mm-hmm. And um, so I try to keep that in mind, you know, to make, it, make him mm-hmm. lovable and to make my first reaction to him was was the book the, the guy he is in this book not like after I was older reading it um at, when I get my 30s when I had daughters of my own I'm like oh god you know you kind of your opinion of him changes mm-hmm. when you have daughters of your own you know <laughs> but I wanted to make him more the likable one that I read when I was 19 so yeah very nice and that's my reaction my journey with Rochester has been the reverse um and you can hear my entire <laughs> journey with how I feel about Rochester on this podcast, which is I didn't like the story of Jane Eyre because I didn't like Rochester when I started reading this. Um, And it wasn't until I started getting more into some of the more sympathetic interpretations of him. And I think something we talk about a lot on the show actually is how much of Rochester is left open for interpretation in Bronte's text. Like when you read it, you can read it where Rochester is a villain and you can take that to this extreme, which is what we saw Gwendolyn do when we talked to her about reluctant immortals, her version Mm -hmm. of that. She takes Rochester to an extreme where he is truly like an evil villain, like makes him comparable to Dracula. Like he's a, he's a creature (laughs) um, and very evil in that way, where I think you can take him to this other extreme of this, poet who's a rock star and just sweet and wants to go home and read poetry and fell in love with a girl who loved poetry too and how life sort of broke his heart over and over again and put him in a circumstance where he was so deeply unhappy um and I think that that's the fun of this show and the fun of Jane Eyre as a text in general is all the different ways you can read all of these incredibly human characters that Bronte created and we you can really play with them in these different spaces and that's what I really loved about reading your book is what a fun space to put these incredible characters in and to sort of reimagine how they would react in these reimagined circumstances thank you yeah I completely agree yeah a friend of mine that I've met (laughs) after writing this book so I just online friend she um lives in England and she keeps a blog called the Bronte Babe blog um, she has a master's degree in um, British literature and her specialty is the Bronte Juvenalia. 
And so she's written about how a lot of the Bronte characters are based on the characters they created when they were young, or at least inspired by, or a natural progression from. And I myself have not read much of the Bronte the Juvenilia, but I know that some of the characters that Charlotte Bronte created in those, when she was just a teenager herself, you know, she had these bad boys, um, and they were they were wicked bad boys. <laughs> they were not not like justifiable bad boys like Mr. Rochester, but you could kind of see the progression of her bad boys that she created as a teenager through the Mr. Rochester character that she created when she was in her, mm. I guess, what, late 20s, early 30s when she wrote him. It's awesome to see that in her work, to see those characters evolve. It's awesome to see you take on the mantle of that as well and like evolve them in your own way too. So, and it's been so nice to have been able to read the story and see it through your eyes. So thank you again so much, Tracy, for reaching out to us and, and sending us your book. Oh, um, Cause we just loved getting to <laughs> explore this through this new lens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for people who uh, got really excited about this and went and read the book, obviously, and are now obsessed with it. Can you tell those people a little bit about your sequels that you mentioned? And um, I know you've talked a little bit about them throughout the show, but just really quick, like those, what the books are about and which books they're based off of. Okay. Um, the one, I'll tell them in the order that I wrote them, but you know, you, you don't have to read them in order. Okay. Um, cause they're not technically sequels. Um, the, what, mm, uh, okay. restless spirits is based on weathering heights and Agnes gray, which were actually published together, which is kind of bizarre because, you know, restless or Agnes gray is this very genteel story of a governess and weathering heights is obviously not genteel. Um, but, um, <laughs> weathering heights has the ghost in it. And, and really the ghost is a small part of weathering heights. You know, they make references to the ghost, but you don't see a whole lot of the ghost, but I was always my favorite part of weathering heights. So I made that a ghost story. And then I made Agnes gray, a ghost story. And I put them together and that's the story of the, um, the, the pianist from the band who's gets lost. He's at Eddie's house. He's driving to the rock and roll hall of fame in Cleveland and he gets stuck off, the, off the road and he ends up in this haunted farmhouse and he meets Kathy's ghosts. Um, so that's a fun story. <laughs> and then uh, Wildfell <laughs> summer is based on the tenant of Wildfield hall. And that's the story of um, an alcoholic, um, nasty, abusive man. And then a woman leaves him and, uh, not to give too many spoilers away, but that's an old story that he will die so that she can marry somebody who's nicer. Um, and so I couldn't just take my Jerry character and make him that character the way that I made Eddie Mr. Mm -hmm. Rochester because I didn't want to have Jerry die. <laughs> so I had to have Jerry just make <laughs> friends with that character. So I had Jerry taking drugs so that he could trip into the book and meet these characters and go partying alongside these Victorian gentlemen and uh, then he becomes addicted oh to imaginary laudanum. And so it's it's kind of, <laughs> you're asking about which Brock fans is based on, even though that one is the most druggy of the books, it's kind of more like the monkeys than the Beatles. It's just a very silly book. It happens while the pilots are on tour in 1967. <laughs> and he keeps he keeps going out of the parties, you know, the, the rockstar parties after the shows, because he wants to go partying with his Victorian friends in his imaginary world. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a silly book so um, and then the last book um, is called Nowhere Girl and that um, 
is based on a fragment of a novel. Charlotte Bronte wrote two chapters of a book before she died. And The Little Princess is kind of based on those two chapters. It's the story of a little girl at a boarding school whose family doesn't come to collect her. And then they have to find out who was her family. And um, so I took the lead singer from the band. And, you know, lead singers of bands often become fathers to their groupies' daughters. <laughs> so it's kind of that story. Um, so I, I wrote all these stories like I say, in between like 2007 and 2011 or whatever. Um, and then I kept trying and trying to get Mr. R published. And, um, you know, I rewrote it completely multiple times from different points of view and whatever. Um, and even after I found a publisher for it, they say, we love it. But, you know, it was 450 pages at the time. He said, can't you just cut it down to 300 pages and add some stuff? <laughs> like, okay. So <laughs> make it shorter, so I, but with more. Yeah. So I did that. And then that did get published in 2018. And, um, and then, like I say, the publisher folded right away and then the pandemic hit. And, um, and so I was kind of stuck at home and that was a great time to revise my novels. And, um, and they yeah. had, um, they had not gotten around to putting out the ebook of Mr. R. And so they said me to me, even at the time, you go ahead and do that. You could just have that. And so my daughter, who's much more tech savvy than me, <laughs> helped me do that. And after I learned how to publish an ebook, then I had these texts. So um, I just spent the pandemic revising them and then publishing those on Amazon too. That's Yay. amazing. And now they're available for all of us they, to enjoy. They are I, I mean, my story that I'm working on is a ghost story too. So the ghost story story sounds amazing. The just getting like in a crazy trip sounds amazing. So I think we've got more reading to do. Just the, the like log line of it is a rock star who is based off of a Bronte character that is tripping so he can party with his Victorian friends. Is very, <laughs> very <good>. cute. <laughs> Thank you. Love it. <laughs> um, so Tracy, uh, do you have any like social handles that you want to share if people want to reach out to you online? Oh gosh, I probably should have written these down. Um, well, if, if you follow me on Facebook, I, I, I keep a, um, a Facebook, um, it's more like a meme page. I don't, can't say I write the memes myself. I just copy funny memes and post them. It's Mr. R by Tracy nice at Facebook. Um, uh, I do have a Twitter account, but I never go on that. So I'm, I'm really bad at that. I keep a blog, um, where I publish mostly just book reviews. Um, and that's, uh, um, I think that's also Mr. R by Tracy Nice. Um, but if you just type in Mr. R, maybe you'll find okay. something. So, yeah. If I'm, you, I, like, if you I, email I have my daughter to do my tech savvy well, stuff for me. <laughs> so I'm not very... Yeah. Either you or your daughter can email us the links and okay. we'll put those Thank in the you. description. So if you want to find okay. more of Tracy's stuff and some of these things she's mentioned, um, there'll be some links in the description for that, you guys. Okay. But thank you so thank much, you. Tracy, for everything you did, getting us a copy of this super fun book. Um, I think our listeners who are as dedicated, if you listen to this podcast, you are a dedicated <laughs> Jane Eyre fan. Um, they'll have a blast reading it. It's a it's a fun time. It isn't the lightest story I've ever read. It did make me very sad. Congratulations, yeah. Tracy, it's at some cute. point. <laughs> I think um, Mr. R is the heaviest. But Jane Eyre's not a light story. No. <laughs> okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, but you did a you did a beautiful job with these characters. So I think our listeners will enjoy reading it for sure. Thank you. One hundred percent. Thank you. 
And Lillian, um, for people who regularly tune Mm -hmm. in, what is in store for next week for those lovely people? Next week, we are going to be listening to our very first radio adaption of Jane Eyre. Um, We are going to do the 1994 radio adaption, which specifically, at least Charlene is listening to this going, ah, the Syrian Hines one. So three years (laughs) before he was in a TV movie, Syrian Hines at a radio on the BBC um, with an actress whose name I will know by the next episode. (laughs) It's a mystery. Tune in to find out. (laughs) So we'll be listening to that next week and come back to talk to you guys about that. If you enjoyed this week's episode or have thoughts or things that you want to share, you can reach out to us anytime. We are at AirBuds on most of the major social platforms. And if you want to send us an email, you can do so. Uh, We are AirBuds at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our episodes, we would greatly appreciate hearing your feedback. Please be gentle with us. We appreciate positive feedback or kind criticisms. Um, Oh, my God. I can take the hard stuff. I can't. (laughs) Just... Just send it just for me. Say, this is just for Viper, and then say all the mean things you think about our podcast. Um, but if you like our podcast, we would it really genuinely helps us to get reviews. So giving us five stars or however many stars you feel we've earned on whatever platform you listen to the podcast on. Maybe write a sentence or two about why you enjoy listening. It really helps. Or send it to your Jane Eyre friends and say, hey, listen to this cool podcast about this cool book that you should read um, or any of our other episodes to share with your friends. (laughs) But yeah, so until then, thank you all for joining us. Thank you again, Tracy. um, And uh, we'll say goodbye for now. So happy Jane Eyre reading and watching everybody. See you later. Bye bye.